Vinyl Crisis. On LA's west side, a group of avid and devoted vinyl collectors scour the remaining handful of locally owned record shops for the rarest of original vinyl to bring you music you won't hear on any other radio platform. None of it is digital. This is how music was meant to be enjoyed. This is Vinyl Crisis. Welcome back to another edition of Vinyl Crisis. In absence of the one and only Ben, I will try to do my best. I feel very grateful today to sit down with the one and only Michael McFadden. How are you, Michael? I'm very good, Vic. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's been a pleasure. I hope all the emails and the Instagram hounding hasn't been a total pain in the ass, but uh, I've been wanting to talk to you for a long, long time. I've been wanting to make it. I'm sorry for the delays. Not a problem. So here we are on a beautiful Friday afternoon, and we're going to talk to a gentleman that was behind one of the most important labels in my life. So Michael, with that, can you just give us a little bit of background on who you are and what you do? How we started? You want me to go back there? Let's start from the beginning. I was going to school out here in LA at, and uh, I started by doing promotions at underground clubs and me and a couple of another buddy from USC, we were doing it together downtown LA before it was happening back when you wouldn't even see police down there. And uh, I didn't like the DJs and what we were hiring and I was always a big record collector. So I wound up become being the DJ and, um, I moved back down to Orange County for a year, got married, and I moved to San Francisco, where we opened a record store, The Groove Merchant. And we started the record label out of the back of that in 1990. Wow. And if I'm not mistaken, The Groove Merchant, if I'm going to try to do this without Google Maps, was on the corner of uh, not Hayes and... Hayes and Hate? No, Steiner. Hate and Scott, originally. Okay. Now it's on Hate and Steiner. Okay. I was just there this weekend. I haven't been there in a while. Chris is still working it, just still turning up lots of great records. Chris Veltry. Yeah, Chris Veltry. I know him from my college days, actually. He's, <laughs> He's a great the, guy. Yeah. He's one of the most laid-back guys I ever met. And quite a curator of music. Yeah. And that story, he is just telling me the rent was $580 when he took it over a month, and it's 2000 now, and the one across the street, they want $8,000 I love Change. that you guys are still up there. I mean, because that area has changed quite a lot. But what hasn't changed is the kind of rich musical tradition that people like us, when we're in San Francisco, there's very few spots to go digging for vinyl. And that shop, I'd love to learn a little bit more about how it came about. What was the kind of the impetus or the insanity behind wanting to start a, a record shop? To be honest, it uh, was out of desperation. I was a DJ down here, and we were doing the clubs. And when I moved to San Francisco, there just wasn't that much work. But I was still buying up lots of records at flea markets, and I was finding old warehouse finds. And at the time, as my father-in-law said, well, if you're having a tough time, why don't you just open a record store? And I had bought in with uh, into a shop called Rookie Ricardo's at first, which still might be there. I'm not sure. Wow. That was a 45 shop mainly. And then at one point, we decided to leave and open our own, and that's when we moved up the street. So what came first, the record shop or the actual label that has changed so many of our lives? And by that, I'm, I'm referring specifically to Ubiquity Records. The, um, the record shop came first, but the idea for the record label came before that. I just didn't get to it until after we start, did the shop. I needed something to pay the rent. And then once we 
once it started doing all right and we turned a profit, that's when we put some of the money into doing a label, which we essentially ran out of the back of the shop that's for many amazing. years. <laughs> is it as exciting as we all think it is to run your own record label? These days it's a lot harder or, or less exciting, I think, because it's all about algorithms and accounting and I don't know. Maybe I'm a dinosaur, but I like the old days when we, you know, the design and record the covers by hand. And I don't know. There's there's good time. It, you know, it's all good as long as you're dealing with good music. You know, that's the perfect segue because I've been wanting to ask you something very personal to me. Like I feel like I would have been a really shitty record store owner and label head because I don't know that I would have produced or helped bring out into the world music that sure you would no i'm not sure because you know we all have our thing and i love that you emphasize that it's about good music but is there ever concerns that what you think is good and what your crew thinks is good might not sell and how do you deal with that yeah for a long time we didn't lose money on any records we put out and the only times we did were the times when we didn't put out what we loved and we put out something we thought somebody that people would like commercially as long as we put out the records we like, there was enough of an audience to buy them to at least make a profit. But if we, uh, anytime we tried to make one just for money, we failed miserably. <laughs> yeah, that's a good lesson right yeah. there. You know, we're dealing with art, and it's yeah. a very subjective thing. I always felt that uh, it was one of the labels I could trust when I started digging for vinyl. There were a few labels, some on the older tip like Groove Merchant. I used to really like the early CTI stuff course blue note um and then i came across your label and i i started realizing it was just kind of like one home run after another and take me back to the beginning what was the first album that you guys produced out of the shop if you remember the very first record we put out was uh three songs from uh, nathan davis off the if album wow and um the second record so that was a reissue and then the second record was a band called vibes alive and one of the guys was renting the studio apartment there are two british guys from london and um they used a famous sample from johnny lytle salim which wow. was a big track at the time too everyone that was a big jazz dance track and um we put that 12 inch out so it was one uh reissue and then one modern record and then we did a couple more reissues after that and the very first album we did was a compilation called bag of goodies mm. And then the second or third album was Grey Boy Freestyling. Wow. And that record just took off on its own. We didn't, it just, it just kept growing and growing and growing. And that's kind of what put us on the map and allowed us to have the financial resources to start putting out more albums. Yeah, that's fascinating because a couple minutes before air, you and I were talking and we used to hang out in the same clubs in San Francisco. We didn't know each other back there. And one of the connections is, the gray boy all-stars and robert walter is a badass on the keys yeah, i remember yes, seeing yes, him yeah. and I, d- I don't recall that that was yours that makes a lot of sense though with the style of music that you guys put out gray boy ha- made his own records as a dj and then he had a band called the gray boy all-stars okay. which he put out on his own label but we distributed it okay yeah. you guys had a good relationship yeah yeah long and, time yeah for a long long time and you know I, Again, you and I, um, our paths haven't crossed before today, but on Vinyl Crisis, we've been blessed to interview some real legends in the world of, uh, of music, and we've heard nothing but great things about you. And uh, Bobby Matos 
as one of the artists on your your label. I'd love to learn a little bit more on how you guys kind of discovered each other and what it was like working together. Well, I spent a lot of time trying to track him down, and then I finally did. I can't even recall how now. But um, we were interested in reissuing uh, the My Latin Soul album. But also there's a, there's a rumored album, which Bobby says was recorded on the Speed label which has never seen the light of day and nobody's found the tapes. I think there was one single floating around. It's supposed to be a great, you know, Bobby says it would have been, you know, right in the vein of my Latin soul because it was within a couple of years of that. And when I was talking to him, he said, well, you should listen to my new stuff. And he sent me a tape and it was really good. And that was a Shango's, Shango's dance out. Wow. So you just, I'm sorry to interrupt, but looking at you and picking up on your vibe, I get the impression, you know, instinctually, when you want to work with some with an artist or with 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 their music most of the time most of the times and these days i don't want to work with anyone unless the vibe's good for both of us i just i don't care how good the record is or or what the financial upside might be i i want to work with people that i like to be around and and i want it to be mutual yeah absolutely so talk to us a little bit about how expansive and large the ubiquity catalog is it's it's really impressive it's actually i've lost count and just in the last week or two because of some business deals we're doing i've just started to add it up but i can't answer that accurately but it's thousands of songs thousands of songs and then if i'm not mistaken under ubiquity records there are a few other labels cubop and love and hate that's correct okay and What's the origin of those, and why the need for multiple labels under the, uh, under the let's call it the parent company? Well, the first one was we started with the love and hate. And to be honest, we were making a record, the Nathan Davis 12-inch. We just didn't have a name, and the Sly, a Sly Stone album was sitting on the counter at Groove Merchant, wow. and it had that song on it, and we just said, let's call it that. Wow. And then um, our record started to get written up and we were getting a lot of press without actually pursuing it we were fortunate that way people liked the records it was the timing was right and so when we started putting out new music like gray boys freestyle and things we were putting out two records or three records a month well the journalists wouldn't uh write both of them up so we created a sub label so that there's two different labels and then they'd write both records up that was really the original reason we did it and to differentiate between modern and, and reissues yeah, absolutely. And how many people does it take to to do the endeavors you did? To be honest, we did it with two people for a very long time. I don't think we hired our first employee for like five years. That's and at one time we grew all the way to 23. And to be honest, we're down to four right now because of the downturns and the, and the way things have consolidated with digital and everything. So that's a perfect question because you and I are, let's just, to be polite, a little bit older. Yeah. So what's your take on digital, the upside and the downside, from a, from a music fan's point of view? I can only say for myself, I mean, I, <clears throat> the sound could be better on digital, but the, the beauty of being able to travel with my record collection is nice. Mm-hmm. And um, I was always a vinyl collector for many, many years, and I still buy records. But at one point, I, I somehow got off. I was addicted. Like I'm sure you know the feeling. Oh yeah, twelve step. Yeah, yeah. And I remember when I stopped. It was like I never smoked, but it must have been like people feel when they quit smoke because I just felt free for a minute. Like <laughs> I, I did. And um, 
I don't really know if I can answer the question yet because it's still evolving. Right now, for the first time in since maybe 2008 or nine, we're I'm seeing we're seeing growth. So the last quarter, there's almost 20% growth in our company, and so I don't know where it's going to go in terms of the business, in terms of personal pleasure. I'm still I like records. Take me back to childhood. Yeah. Where'd you start digging? Like what city? You remember your first record shop experience? Yeah. Um, I remember the first record I bought. It was uh, Steppenwolf with Magic Carpet Ride. Beautiful. And um, there used to be a department store in Huntington Beach. My parents had moved down there from L.A. And it was called Two Guys. It's not around anymore, but it's kind of like a Target. In fact, Target is in the building where it used to be. But they had a big record area in there. And that's where I bought my first records. After that, it was Alice Cooper and Black Sabbath and David Bowie and Mata Hoople and Lou Reed. And I just remember all those records at the same era. I was in about fourth or fifth grade. Yeah, that's how it starts. Now, did you have any siblings that you had to share that music with? No, I had a, I had a younger brother, yeah, but he, he, we were three and a half years. He's younger. And then, um, but speaking of siblings, most of us kids that were my age, we were learning all about this music from their older brothers. Exactly. There's a couple guys in particular, and one of them was really a music head. He had a great stereo system, and he had all these records, and we'd go play them, and I'd start either buying those records or, or buying ones that looked like them, and that's where it originally... I really didn't get into soul music till I was about 18 years old. That's when I really started just going to record stores and just buying anything... I think it was the JBs or something was the first record I really got into. And I said, I like that. And so I started. Was it something you sought out or did it just happen? I'm fascinated on the kind of musical waves that we come in and out of in our lives. I don't know. It's, I, I, I've definitely gone through my different genres. You know, I grew up on Los Angeles punk rock in the late 70s and early 80s. And, um, I still buy some of those records, too. I like all music. It, for me, there wasn't a lot of guidance on soul music. I just started digging yeah. and buying any record I thought was interesting. And quite frankly, in that area, they weren't. It wasn't popular, and you were able to buy records very cheap. I, I remember buying twenty-four karat blacks, <laughs> and when I, I used to have stacks of those at the Groove Merchant, you, and at first you couldn't give them away. I had them for fifteen dollars. People wouldn't buy them. It was, wow. I, there was like some records that I thought were out of the British scene, and then there were some that were just self-discovered by people, whether it was me here and, or guys in L.A. or in New York at the time. You know, they weren't the ones on the list that were hot at the time, but they were great records that are now considered. Yeah, that brings up so many lovely uh, uh, points for me because I always felt, found that vinyl was a very personal way to discover music, but also to share it. So I grew up listening to The Clash and a lot of The Police, actually, because yeah. my older, older brother gave me my first vinyl when I was nine, and I still have them. And uh, there was something tactile about being able to bring it to school because that's just what we did as children, you know? And I guess you can have that same kind of experience with digital. It's like, here, share the phone. But what I love about vinyl and talking to people like you, I always equated it to, it's almost like a love letter that's coming in from overseas. And especially if you go digging for something, there's many, many hands that have touched it. It's been on many, many different record players, and I almost feel like those albums want to make their way into your collection. But it takes somebody, someone's interest to want to go out and discover soul. In my case, funk. Or, or any music, really. But I, I, 
going back to what you started with, we really did share records like that. We would get a vinyl record on Friday with money that we earned, and it was like a, it had value because you'd worked for it and taken your allowance and gotten a record. And then we'd go to one of these guys, older brother's stereo systems, and we'd sit there, five kids, and each would play his record, and we'd share it like that. And I don't know if – I don't see my kids doing that same experience with their digital, you know? So, so that's very interesting because um, I'd love to talk to you about what it's like to be a parent with really great music taste and then having to deal with kids growing up in the YouTube, Spotify era, do you have to just take a step back and let them discover some of the music that you've worked on and been involved in or do they come up to you? Do they want suggestions? How's that work nowadays? They always tell me if your record company's so cool, dad, why aren't you rich? Uh, you can't I've tried to push music down my kids throat and you can't do it they like what they like and I think they grow in like my oldest daughter and and, and the youngest one too now but they they started with pop music like all the girls in high school but they've learned to venture out and they go to music festivals and things like that and I think they're just having the same experience we had in, in a different way to a certain degree but they're open to it yeah. They're open to They're becoming open minded. Yeah. Like they didn't used to be. Yeah, it's funny. I don't think I the think music you discover as a child or a young adult is necessarily the music you die listening to, but there are some fabrics um, to the music that s- stays with us throughout our lives. I'm curious about one thing. Um, there seems to be a lot of discussion lately about this whole vinyl reemergence or renaissance, whatever the hell you want to call it. I personally don't think vinyl ever went anywhere because I'm the age that I am and I've always preferred to listen to music on vinyl. What's your take on it? I don't know. I mean, on one hand, I think it's great. And on the other hand, sometimes I just, I see all this Instagram and vinyl. I like you. I'm like, I didn't know it ever went away. And um, I do see, I sort of see people just running and buying any record on vinyl rather than just like really being discerning about it. It's not everybody, but like mm-hmm. maybe the new newbies um but i'm glad that people are buying it on vinyl i feel like maybe the experiences that we just mentioned sharing music together on a turntable is starting to happen again i mean i see it within some of my own adult friends they've gone out and bought stereos they maybe never had and are doing it for the first time and buying records and having people over and playing them and drinking wine and so i've seen that and i find it's a really communal way to connect with people I mean, it's kind of like books or wine or whatever it is. And I think it's important in life to have a thing that you enjoy doing. And uh, I can't think of a better thing than to share music on records. And it's tangible. You know, you can hold it and feel it and, you know, share the artwork. And read the liner notes. And read the liner notes. I mean, that's how we get a lot of our interviews for Vinyl Crisis. Well, I mean, we'll be going through uh, liner notes and we'll be reading it. And it's like, we'll see the basses or the organist, the trombonist, the pianist, and then we just connect with people like that. And I just feel like it weaves this narrative that keeps me digging. I don't think I'm ever going to have to stop or will be able to stop because there's so much more music to still discover. And a lot of the side guys on jazz records were very interesting and accomplished musicians, and I've, I've sat in studios with them and things. Even some of the guys Bobby plays with them, they, they, all, got, they all have a story, and usually a good one. Yeah, and I think, I think we've gotten away from appreciating those subtle stories 
because the culture now is about immediate, but we've gotten to this point of proliferation and music and acceptance and brand deals and, you know, Super Bowl parties because of a lot of the cats that you and I listen to. And I feel like it's nice when we all take a minute to acknowledge these men and women that made these contributions to our lives. And it might be sometimes by interviewing them, it might be with what you do, reissuing some of their music, but I feel like also just sharing the music and keeping it alive in people's dialogue is part of why we do the vinyl thing. I remember it being in more than one circumstance when we contacted people to reissue their music. They were far more interested in the fact that it was finally going to get reissued and listened to because it didn't make it the first time around than they were in any of the financial upside that might occur. You know, They were just grateful that it might be shared and by more people than heard it the first time around. Oh, I love that. Give me an example of somebody that you dug up. I was just up. trying to recall a couple, and I can't remember the two that said that. I mean, I know Bobby felt that way to a certain extent. Um, I was very eager to get his new music out, and I can't recall the person where it, it'll come to me maybe as we talk, but there was one guy who just, that he was adamant. That was all he cared about getting that record out because he said it just didn't get the promotion it needed back then. It was a very obscure record. So going through your catalog, I realized, speaking of obscure, it might be obscure for some of our listeners, but not to you because you, you helped release it. But how did you discover the Durando stuff that you guys put out a couple years ago? I actually, I put it out in 2006, I think. Um, I wasn't really responsible for that one. I think it was Giles Peterson brought that record to our attention and Andrew Jervis, who worked for me at the time. Wow. And um, spent quite a long time tracking that down. And then when we did, there was a whole unreleased album. So that's how that one came along. He was a wonderful to work with. He was a very interesting guy. I really liked him a lot. I spent a lot of... More time, I think we. I spent more time with him personally than some of the people who we we've reissued their music, and um, he actually went on the road, you know, at his age and played, and, and we put him on a little tour, which with most of our reissues doesn't happen, and it was great. I've seen I've seen that album and quite a few DJs, you know, cases. I just, it's a great record. There's not. It's just no denying. Yeah, there's no denying it. So why don't we play a couple minutes of that? Okay. I love my mama. 
man. So right now, Michael, we're also going to play a couple minutes off Bobby Mato's My Latin Soul. Any particular track that you would recommend? I know it's hard to pick just one off that great album. Uh, it is a great album. I always like the... Um... Oh, you had to pick the one with the very difficult... Uh, yeah, but so, that's the best one. So we're going to play B1, Tema de la Alma Latina, the Latin soul theme. Perfect. That was the one that made him, that everyone was after.
So, Michael, we are now going to play something off Help Us Spread the Message by the Mighty Writers. Tell us a little bit about this album. This was a very obscure record. It still is. In fact, my friend said he just sold a second pressing of this record on eBay, and he got $700 for it, which I was stunned by. But it, it's, um, I don't know, in my opinion, this was a record where every song on it's great. This is just every song through is good. I think it became most famous because this track Evil Vibrations was sampled by De La Soul. And, um, but there's lots of good songs on it. I really liked Lovely and um, Star Children, Help Us Spread the Message. They're all great. Why don't we play Lovely? We're going to play Lovely right now. Enjoy. Lovely, we're so lovely. Beautiful. 
So, Michael, I'm holding another one of your uh, beautiful compilations off Love and Hate, uh, specifically Jazz Dance Classics from the Vaults of Fantasy Records Volume 1, which is one of the just stoniest albums and compilations. What would you uh, what would you recommend we play off this album? This was a series we did with Fantasy Records, and to be quite honest, I was just a 25-year-old kid when I wrote a letter over to them to see if they'd let us dig in the vaults and to my surprise Ralph Kaffel the president of Fantasy Records wrote me back and had me over and allowed us to do just that so we did four volumes of the Jazz Dance Classic series and we also did a couple Latin Jazz Dance Classics um, I don't know play Gary Bart's Celestial Blues that's as good a song as any oh, that's an amazing choice before we get to playing that Fantasy Records going back to something we talked about very early on in the conversation Fantasy and Prestige I mean they're kind of on my Mount Rushmore yeah. of labels. I think they used to I'd be agree all, with that. yeah, like tenth and somewhere in Berkeley. And I remember just a big ass, nondescript warehouse, right? And well, they kind of had a high rise building too, or at least six floors or something. But they had, it's my understanding, they had bought that property and developed it, and then they had their warehouse down below. What was that like? I mean, that's like being inside the Smithsonian or being in Pompeii and being able to dig unabashed it was fun <laughs> it was yeah. really good we mastered most of our records there too by george horn and uh, george george is always telling me good stories he, he had been around there forever you know and worked with just about everyone not just jazz artists but also uh, a lot of bay area hip art hip-hop artists in the 90s were doing their records there not on that label but in their studios and before we get into playing Celestial Blues by Gary Bartz, you brought up something that is very interesting to me. The whole world of sampling in hip-hop is, for for some of us, has played a big part in how we've discovered music and labels, right? So I think back to some of the early 90s stuff, like Jungle Brothers, Dela, and Tribe, specifically for me. I mean, they were sampling a lot of Hammond B3 stuff. Yeah. What's your take on that generation sampling some of these old cats? Do you think it was good for the overall regeneration of music and regenerating interest for some of the music that wasn't being listened to, or do you see it in a in a different in a different light? No, I think it was great, and I love that era of music. And I know it was good financially too for a lot of the artists who probably made more much more money during that term. I remember Weldon Irvine oh. telling me, I forget who which record it was, but uh, he got a check one year for three hundred thousand dollars from a sample. And that was life changing for him. Weldon's uh, Weldon's vinyl fetches a premium. Yeah, it's very rare. It's very rare. He was a bright guy. I liked him a lot. Him and I remained friends until his uh, passing. Sinbad, right? And a couple. Sinbad. There was. Uh, but if a I'm Cosmic not... Vortex. Yeah. There was a, the two on the Dodlu label, which we we reissued those at one point. Yeah, and I'm glad I brought that. I don't up. even have a copy of one of our reissues. <laughs> Well, you got to change that. I know. So we're going to get into a couple minutes of uh, Celestial Blues by Gary Bartz. Yeah. 
So I wanted to thank uh, Michael um, on multiple fronts, not only for being our guest today and taking the time out of a very busy schedule, but for just kind of helping me uh, over many, many years discover a lot of the music that I personally listen to. Uh, Michael, um, Ubiquity, Love and Hate, Cubop has a very rich tradition. If our listeners want to learn more and buy your vinyl and your reissues, where do they go? They're available most anywhere. Amoeba Records, off our website at ubiquityrecords.com. Dusty Groove always has them in stock. Turntable Lab. Beautiful. So once again, heartfelt thanks to Michael McFadden, and we will hear you guys back here next week. Thank thanks, you. Vic. You've been listening to Vinyl Crisis, featuring rare and eclectic all-vinyl musical treasures. 